2: From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This week, we've been examining the refugee and asylum system, tracing the arc of its development, and checking in with communities that are in dire need of refuge. Today, we're joined by Esmeralda Mendoza, who is a paralegal and interpreter at East Bay Sanctuary, which was founded in 1982 to help families seeking asylum and continues to do that work today. Welcome, Esmeralda.
1: Um, thank you. I'm glad I I am here with you
2: guys. <laughs> glad to have you. We're also joined by Vanessa Velasco, uh, community advocacy and engagement coordinator at CARSEN SF, a Central American Resource Center located in San Francisco. Welcome.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
2: <laughs> so other communities may be in the sort of refugee and asylum spotlight right now. I mean, we've talked this week already with uh, Haitian folks and. Uh, the Afghan community. But Central American communities have been dealing with these issues for decades now. Vanessa, can you talk about the kinds of issues that you've encountered in your work when people, you know, from Central America seek refugee status in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, one of the first things that they have is like, uh, you know, try to get the resources that they need to proceed with the cases. That's why we are working with partners and other organizations to try to have those Things ready, so when people arrive at the border with asylum claims, they are able to, you know, proceed with them and connect with all those resources that they need that are vital to gain their cases.
2: What kind of stuff? What kind of evidence do they need to bring to the border?
0: Well, first, uh, first thing is the uh, uh, um, the, the fear uh, mm-hmm. interview that they have to to submit with the border agent when yeah. they have them and after that they have to have documentation that prove whatever claim they are you know that they are they are claiming like uh if they have police reports or other type of things hmm. they have to obtain them and sometimes I would say it's hard because sometimes these people are you know fleeing from at night and they don't and it's a long journey so they've been Rob, uh, entire you know mentally and physically. So sometimes it's hard to obtain all oh, this, and that's where we come and try to find the ways that they can try, uh, get some the papers uh, from the consulate or their embassies and start to build a case. That's what's well, really important. Yeah.
2: Well, and it's tough if you're, let's say, you're fleeing from the police themselves. Uh, difficult to have a police report that backs up your story. um you know, I know that both of you come to this work and have your own stories that inform um, how you how you do it. Esmeralda Mendoza, can you tell me about your sort of own path to the United States?
1: Yes. I'll be glad to. Um, so I, I am an immigrant myself, um, come from immigrant um, parents that migrated from Guatemala. My parents and I migrated from Guatemala in 1997. Um, my father was also fleeing the violence that um, was occurring or that Originally happened in 1982, the civil war in Guatemala, and they kept just pursuing them because they're indigenous Maya Mom people, as I am too. um mm-hmm. And they speak; we speak a dialect called Mom. Um, so we are, well, technically we are mostly the ones that are being persecuted back in our home country because people think or we're associated somewhere with guer- guerrilla groups, which mm-hmm. at that point uh, people were. Um, confused because we weren't because we were not able to express ourselves or speak in Spanish or any other language other than our dialects and that's something that has um is still happening at the moment um, I I met my husband in Guatemala um, he also fled um Guatemala recently in 2018 um, he uh seeked asylum and was granted asylum and now is a permanent resident um, but I would say he has suffered a lot. And until so to this day, a lot of people don't know the struggles that um an indigenous person or not even indigenous. Um, they are suffering from or fleeing from their own country where they were born and raised because of a lot of things, corruption mostly, mainly mostly it's corruption because you can't um get help from any authorities or you can't even seek um or ask for help because if you seek or ask or speak up, you're, you'll are you be targeted because of what you're saying and if you don't agree from what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's been a really hard path. I've witnessed myself some. I've been back in Guatemala um, and visited a few times. I've seen a lot of things and I've heard a lot of stories since working at East Bay Sanctuary um, where uh, people were fleeing because they were about to, um, they were going to kill or there were even... Mm-hmm. Um, We have clients that family was killed, either their parents, their uh, their kids, or they had to leave their kids, but they're still in danger. They're trying to hide, but can't find nowhere else to be safe. So it's something really upsetting that it keeps happening, not only in Guatemala, but it keeps happening in all Central America, either gang related, um, police related, drug trafficking, um, human trafficking. It's it's just a lot. Are there
2: specific challenges that indigenous folks coming from Central America who may, you know, speak, uh, d- may not speak Spanish, may not speak English either, may speak mom. I know there's a large community in the East Bay of mom speakers. Um, how do you a- attempt to address the specific challenges of indigenous uh, people from Central America?
1: Uh, I think they face an obstacle almost every day in their lives because of not being able to express themselves or to even communicate in a language that it isn't their first language is really hard. Um, and not having an interpreter there or not even somebody there to hear them out, it's hard for them because they, they feel the fear that nobody will understand them. And they have lack of trust in people because people will just like ignore them if they don't really speak Spanish or if they don't understand it. So it's, I, I would say it's um, it's been difficult these past few years. My mom, she's only a mom speaker. She doesn't speak Spanish or English. Um, so I've all my life been a, like her interpreter. Everywhere we go, I had to be with her. Um, because uh, there was no other way um, of people helping or even knowing that language, and now I am um, here in the. Um, I've seen throughout the years since there's been an increase of mom speaking people here. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen that there's more people that have gotten um, interacted more Maya mom people like I do who learned English, who learned Spanish. Um are helping out our community because we see an increase in our, our community here and mostly here in oakland, mm-hmm. I've seen an increase of that and I think of us showing and coming out like from the dark and saying, yes, we exist, we are here, we speak this language, we are right now right here. Um, I think it's opening everybody's eyes. Now they're offering or they're asking like, are you willing to help? Are you coming here? Like back in the days when my father applied for asylum, they didn't even know what mom was. He did nobody knew where it came from. Um, And now I had the honor to work at East Bay Sanctuary where at the moment I help my community. I help my mom speaking. Um, people i i am their voice and that's something that makes me proud but nowadays i'm seeing more and more people getting engaged and helping our community
2: we're talking about the ongoing challenges for central americans seeking asylum in the u.s with Esmeralda Mendoza, a paralegal and mom interpreter at East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, and Vanessa Velasco, a community advocacy and engagement coordinator for Carson SF. Are you a member of the Bay Area Central American community? What are your thoughts or reflections on how the U.S. has handled asylum seekers coming from Central America? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866 866-733- 733 Six seven eight six. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or you can email your questions to forum at KQED.org. Uh, Vanessa, I, I know that you also uh, bring your story into this work. And I was wondering uh, if you could tell us you know, how, how you came to do uh, this kind of work.
0: Yeah, I came here at the United States uh, in 2000, fleeing gun violence and, and lack of opportunities in my country. And a few months after, in 2001, uh, the Salvadorian, was, uh, was the U.S. granted to Salvadorians TPS, Temporary Protected Status, due to devastated earthquakes that basically, uh, you know, torn apart countries. And due to, in 2017, when the Trump administration came in power, they tried to to get rid of, we know how they were with immigrants. And mm-hmm. one of the easiest paths that they try to, to the, you know, to get, to try to, try to start the war with, with, with the immigrants here were using these humanitarian programs and, t- and, and turn them apart, cancel them and TPS one of them. Uh-huh. the tps for almost the 13 countries were cancelled and we started fight in 2017 in the course of the street engaging with uh, with elected officials to let them know that what the, this program meant to us for more than the for almost half million people and families directed impacted if this program were to cancel and that's how we start to engage in right now as you said right now we were able to st- yeah
2: yeah so the way i understand tps is that it's uh almost a special form of uh asylum uh, seeking for particular countries um it makes it a little bit easier to be able to come into the U.S. even if you haven't had your like asylum approved in general is that correct
0: no tps it's a program that is granted to people that is already in the u.s okay when a when a you know a, a natural disaster or another political event happens, that the that the U.S. granted to a specific country. Right now, there are thirteen uh, countries uh, that are, are under TPS, but you need to be on the U.S.
2: under temporary protective status. Got it. Got it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is: you know, are Central American people getting the attention they need from resettlement organizations, given the influx of other refugees from Afghanistan, from Haiti, and, and other places?
0: Yeah, that's what, that's what I say. There is many organizations that national level that we try, you know, to, doesn't matter where they, where you come from, you are seen as asylum seeker. So mm-hmm. the resources have to be there for you. That's what is important. Language access for them. Uh, it doesn't matter which country you came from. Do you have those resources for it? And of course, we know that at the border before the, the, the brothers and sisters from Haiti start to come, a lot of Central American people was fleeing, uh, you know, due to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: the conditions that right now are happening. So that's how how we work.
2: Esmeralda uh, Mendoza, Central American children uh, had been coming alone to the border or or crossing alone, at least. Um, How have U.S. policies towards those children changed over time?
1: From my, um, from my, I I've seen for the last few years um, because there was there is an increase in unaccompanied minors, mm-hmm. and they consider them as UACs, which stands unaccompanied minors. Um, they are put in removal proceedings and have to present themselves in front of a judge um, to seek for their asylum if they're asking for asylum or any other type of um, protection. And um, well, from what I see, uh, because there's a variety of um, Minors in, in the border and it's sometimes hard for them because they don't even know the language, some of them don't know the language some of they don't know. Um, what they are really asking for um, so um, in and the government i've seen that there's either two choices for minors uh, to apply for if they're fleeing their home because of some violence. Um, and they can't stay there they can either um, apply for the asylum. Or there's another program um, that is called SIJS, uh, and it's just for juveniles, like minors, where um, since they flee their home um, and they leave, they take a long journey to the US alone without no parent or guardian with them, um, they're able to apply for this SIJS, where they typically. Special
2: immigrant juvenile protection.
1: Yes, special immigrant juvenile. Um, status and that is um, where they um, seek that their parents couldn't take care of them because of resources or either um, lack of um, lack of money or lack of protection from parents because they they can't either because um, they're too old or either because there's no help in general for mm-hmm. um, younger people um, so. For them, being able to apply for that, I think it's something um, that gives them another chance and opportunity for them to fight, even if um, asylum doesn't work out. Because asylum is it's it's really hard, I would say, to obtain since the government has made it like really hard, um, like the requirements of it. They have made it really hard for someone to prove they have to prove like they were almost killed for them to be um granted asylum or they were being prosecuted for either their race, political opinion or anything. But if it comes to poverty over it comes to just because of general violence and stuff, they don't give asylum from that. So that's a big challenge they face. um, They face throughout the um, throughout the years. So having the SIJS, Special Juvenile Immigrant Status, I think helps them and pushing them um, and them having an opportunity to be legal and to stay here legally. Yeah.
2: I mean, I guess I want to ask a really basic question. I mean, do you think U.S. policies towards Central American refugee and asylum seekers have been fair?
1: For me personally, I think they, they, they are not fair because there are occasions where um, when someone comes to the border and they have lack of understanding of how the policies work, or don't even know what asylum is or what they're willing to ask, they're not, um, I would say the government is not willing to hear them. Like they won't give them a chance to speak out, to speak to themselves, or even to say anything. Um, They are just there or even to speak their language, because most of those minor or kids or adults that are coming to the board, sometimes they speak Spanish, sometimes they don't. And sometimes they don't give them a chance to go in front of a judge and try and ask to fight for their case or to proceed with their case. Sometimes they are just granted expedited removal without having a say in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's unfair. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Vanessa, once people get to the country and and start to settle here in the Bay Area, how does your organization try to build community and and kind of give people a sense of belonging here in the United States?
0: Yeah, we have like a... CARES and the same with other organizations uh, here in the Bay Area, we have legal representation for them. And also some of organizations have programs that they, they can start, you know, to feel part of the community. At the same time that we connect the resources, there are these programs when they can meet with other person that just recently arrived or, or they have already established and they just start their life to be, to be able to send their kid to school, to try to, you know, to find jobs and start that sense of belonging. Again, in rebuild their lives.
2: Yeah, do people end up staying around here for the community, or does like the, the just the price of housing and how much it costs to live end up sending people other places?
0: Yeah. Usually, will people tr- will try to stay where their community uh, is, but we know in the in the Belleria, the housing is what is driving people out. Mm-hmm. Some of the people have to work at the city, but they live somewhere else.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Is that the same thing that you're seeing, Esmeralda?
1: Yes. So, from what I'm seeing, mostly here in the Bay Area, um, there's a lot of people that just decide to stay. um, And the thing they do is just work. They go out once they get a work permit, once they get some type of permission to work they decide to stay because i'm here and i would say in the east bay there's a lot of resources organizations that are willing to help um these people these immigrants um Mm -hmm. and supporting them there's a lot of support groups a lot of organizations that are really to help them out look for work apply for a work permit or just anything and try to follow the law so i think they feel more um they feel more connected being here. So I've seen the majority of them stay. But like you said, because of increase of prices and stuff, sometimes they decide to move out. But sometimes it's just like seasonal and then they and are going come, come back. Cool.
2: We've been talking about the ongoing challenges for Central Americans seeking asylum in the U.S. with Esmeralda Mendoza, a paralegal and mom interpreter at East Bay Sanctuary Covenant, and Vanessa Velasco, Uh, Community Advocacy and Engagement Coordinator for Kadasan SF. Thank you to you both. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.